0: serves. This is Sir Gene with your morning update in the afternoon. Today I've got something a little different for you guys. I've had an open invitation for Adam Curry to come onto my podcast pretty much since before the first episode. And while he's agreed to it several times, we still haven't managed to make it happen. So now that he's going on vacation, I think it is the perfect opportunity to just put out an Adam Curry episode. Since I couldn't get Adam Curry, I'm going to use the next best thing. I'm going to use the Adam Curry deepfake voice built from clips from No Agenda to do the interview for him. I hope you guys enjoy. One of the pioneers of new media, the man without whom podcasting wouldn't exist, the Podfather himself. Plane strapped to my
1: ass <laughs> and the next generation radio content in my ears. We don't need no stinking. I like to think I'm flying into the future.
0: <laughs> Podcasting. It's Adam Curry. One, two, three. Thank you, Audit. Audit. Thank God it's. <laughs> Thank God it's. That's right. The man himself, Adam Curry. How are you, Adam? Gene,
1: that is exactly how I go to work every day. That's what plays when I walk down the halls. That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was great.
0: Well, it's the sound that I certainly uh, was introduced to podcasting with, and I'm I'm Mm. very happy to have you finally on the interview here. I know we've been talking about this probably five years, and of course, I haven't been doing a podcast for those five years, but I kept saying one day, one day I want to interview you. Today is that day. Today is that day. Before we jump into where that clip came from and podcasting as it was in the mid-2000s, I first want to go back a little further because there might be a few people who are not as familiar with your work, your body of work as I am. So for their benefit, let's just kind of give them a little bit of a rundown on who you are and what you did that ultimately led up to being involved in podcasting from the very beginning. You were born (laughs) in the U.S.,
1: Oh, you want me to go back that far? Okay. I think it's a fun story. From what I can remember, I was born in the U.S., uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. Before I was one, I believe, my parents moved to Uganda for a couple of years. And so this is 1964, 1965, before Idi Amin came in. I don't remember a lot of that. I, there are some, some memories. And if I see my dad shot a lot of, you know, Super 8 millimeters, so I can I remember some of the scenarios. I do remember kind of getting out really quick, moving back. Mm -hmm. And later it turns out we were more or less like the last flight from Entebbe kind of thing. (laughs) Like get up. We weren't actually on the roof of the embassy on a helicopter, but I do remember it was kind of a a rush move back. And then we were in Maryland for a couple of years. And my parents one day said, Hey, you know, we're moving again. Oh, where are we going? Oh, we're going to Holland. uh, Which is what they call the, it's the Netherlands is really, of course, the official name. And I'm like, Oh, what's that? Yeah. Well, they wear wooden shoes there and, So uh, at the uh, young age of uh, not even seven, moved to the Netherlands, which is an entirely different media landscape than I had been used to. Uh, Government controlled, government owned airwaves. There were four FM radio stations, one medium wave, all government run. There was a top 40 station. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see it. (laughs) Uh, It started at 7 a.m. and went off the air at 11.30 p.m. Because, of course, you know, you can't be rocking and rolling before or after hours. And they played polka music and, you know, it was pretty bad. Everyone had gray telephones (laughs) issued by the state. Television also started at 7 p.m. and ended at 11.30 and it was two channels, and that was it. So coming from a U.S. media landscape, it was, it was pretty gnarly. I uh, went to international school for a number of years. Then um, my parents decided it would be fun for the kids to go to Dutch school, so I entered fifth grade speaking pretty much no Dutch except for fish poop, which is what they drew in chalk in front of our house uh, in the neighborhood with an arrow pointing towards our yes. house. <laughs> uh, and then around, best thing I want to say, I was like 13, 14, um, I got really interested in uh, electronics. Um, I was working part time or Saturdays uh, at an electronics store where I was selling, literally selling resistors and transistors and it was capacitors. Like the and...
0: Dutch Radio Shack kind of thing, yeah.
1: It was. It, it was an independent store, so it wasn't a chain, uh, but therefore was also, you know, there was a lot of knowledge, and I learned real quick about, you know, these kinds. And this is where all the nerds came to to look at stuff. And around that time, I was introduced to the ZX eighty. Uh, from Sinclair. Uh, my dad brought one home and kind of tossed it aside and said, that's crap. And, uh, you know, with a buddy at the electronics store, we we built our own 300 baud acoustic modems, uh, which we did by ripping apart an old phone and, you know, basically reversing the, the mouthpiece and the earpiece and making a little cardboard, you know, cup around it. And uh, we would dial into each other's. I had, my, I had my own phone line, which I paid for with my Saturday job. Um, then we could, you know, connect and there would a handshake would occur. And then I'd type something on my screen. It would show up on his screen. Fancy. And yeah, it was very, it was great. And this is even pre BBS as I'd say at the time, uh, I think the BBC had their acorn computer and they were broadcasting computer programs over the radio, which you would record on a cassette. And then you could read that into your, uh, your, uh, your memory through playback on the cassette. So that was kind of the era, um, and then started to grow up. Simultaneously, in that, and I got very interested in. Uh, well, by building my own transmitter, I got interested in radio, um, and I, you know, had a it was a Radio Shack uh, one hundred and one or one hundred kits in one, one hundred projects in one. Yep. And you could connect these wires, and you know, you'd understand simple schematics. And I wound up building a little FM transmitter, and then I, you know, hooked up a record player and. Uh, uh, actually my mom drove me around the block see how far the signal lasted and I noticed that the kids in the neighborhood like, hey you know we were scanning around the band and because you could do that back in the day uh, and of course at the time there are also the uh, sea pirates on medium wave uh, off the off the coast in the north sea so I noticed that you know well, what? this is kind of cool and so then I built a little mixer and acquired a second record table a record player turntable and got a mic and just started to mess around and practice and you kind of emulate what I'd heard here and there, certainly U.S. radio. And uh, see the, the progression there? I was like 15, and I saw an ad in the newspaper for a closed-circuit hospital radio station looking for presenters and engineers. Uh, so uh, you had to be 16, but my parents said, you know, just lie. Tell them you're 16. Go ahead. So I uh, auditioned for both. Did not get the presenter gig, but I did get an engineering gig. Mm. And there I met uh, one guy, Jeroen van Inkel, who was at the time working at a very um, well-known pirate radio station in Amsterdam mm-hmm. called Decibel Radio, which was on Friday afternoon to, Sunday, to Monday morning. And it was just, you know, so it was like that 56-hour that period, whatever it was, and they ruled Amsterdam. We were playing you know, import music, uh, stuff that was just not heard of, usually not even available at the time in record stores. And Amsterdam, of course, was, you know, this is the music people starting to listen to in clubs. And uh, so there was an obvious cultural gap between the broadcasters and what was happening, uh, uh, boots on the ground. And he said, well, you should come out and try out. And I did. And uh, I wasn't too good at it, but then one of the guys said, why don't you do it in English? And so I did. (laughs) And uh, so again, I'm now I'm like 16, I guess, but this time, Uh, and I created this, of course you didn't want to have your real name out there because it was illegal and you know, you did get arrested from time to time. Not anything serious, but you know, our equipment would get confiscated and um, so everyone had a DJ name. Even though Adam Curry is a great DJ name, I chose John Holden and um, by what some had told me, I sounded like I was black. So I became a black 24 year old guy who drives a Harley. Oh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> and I would make dates all the time. Hey, baby, just meet me behind the American Hotel tonight. I'll see it. There's no <laughs> one behind the American Hotel if you've ever been to Amsterdam. You can't actually get behind there. <laughs> uh, and that really started my, uh, my broadcast career. I then subsequently went to, uh, well, I went to West Virginia uh, for, to study communications, dropped out after three months thinking this is no good. And I was actually running the, the, the campus radio station within those few months. I just didn't. I mean, I grew up in Amsterdam, so I did. College life was not what I needed. I didn't need to see how much I could drink or smoke or how fast I could drive. You know, growing up in Amsterdam, none of this is a big deal, and who cares? And I went back, and my parents said, "Well, uh, either you, within a month, either you are back in school, uh, or you have a job and you're paying rent to us, or you're out." And about three and a half weeks later, uh, after sending a uh, Kind of an open letter to a guy named Lex Harding, who was the um, the chief of uh, radio at uh, at one of the newer but very uh, up and coming cool uh, broadcasters, who were now allowed to make use of the um, government system through a whole nother set of rules, which is quite crazy. But briefly, in the Netherlands to this day, it's still the same way. Even though they do have commercial entities now, you um, have a right to airtime depending upon how many members you have. So oh, you're a broadcast organization. So a lot of these organizations were religiously oriented. Sure, so you sure. have the evangelicals, which is quite large, uh, the Christian Democrats, you have, then you also have the socialists and Veronica, which was a whole bunch of people who used to be on the North Sea, North sea uh, pirate ship. Uh, they started an organization they had over, a, like, a, you know, they were moving towards a million members. So they got a lot of airtime time and they had a lot of stuff to fill. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, a guy who was hosting a, a music television show weekly for them, which was kind of in its infancy at the time. This is really, um, this is pre it's actually, it's probably just around 81, just around the time MTV was starting in the, in the U S. Um, and and he was leaving and they were looking for somebody. And so, you know, a week after, meeting this, you know, this boss, uh, he was my boss. And I was live on the air uh, at the time, you know, half of the, of the viewing country watched this program. Um, and I started to do radio, uh, you know, the official radio alongside of that. And, you know, really brought a lot of fun kind of, um, re- rebellious attitude, uh, to the, uh, government owned airwave. So built up a bit of a name, with that. So you had the advantage
0: and, of speaking both English, which was sort of novel. I guess a lot of people there speak English, but being very fluent in it, and then also Dutch.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and certainly for the for the stuff I was doing on television, it was very novel for a Dutch presenter, host, interviewer to have command of the English language to a degree that you could interview Tina Turner or David Bowie or Madonna or, you know, said uh, pretty much Paul McCartney, you name it, I've probably interviewed them. At the time, the Netherlands was a very much a gateway to Europe. And so most artists who were promoting anything would come through the Netherlands and they all liked the show. It was, it was, you know, it's like, wow, this is a pretty fun show to do. And, you know, it was always lots of beer, lots of fun, lots of kids <laughs> hanging out and, uh, and, you know, and it had a, a very good vibe. And to be able to interview um, celebrities of that status, but then to do it more in a in a comfortable manner where you can get a laugh out of somebody or it's just, it's a fun interview. And it went a little beyond, uh, what's this, or as the Dutch would go, what is the song about? You know, that's, <laughs> so that's what they were used to. So, you know, in, in the land uh, of the blind, one eye is king. So it, may, it, it was an easy rise for me that way.
0: So and around. So sorry. you were using your own name by this point, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And
1: okay. uh, now I'm 19. That's when I was, uh, on, on the air for the first time on television. And. Uh, I got a call one day, actually it was during a big party as Veronica, the broadcast organization, uh, had just gotten their A status with a million members and expanded airtime. And I got a call downstairs at reception and said, yeah, Adam, someone from New York calling. So I pick it up right there and it's hard to hear. I said, "Yes, yeah, Steve Leeds from MTV in New York. I want to know if you want to come and work for us. And MTV had just started up in Europe, although not in the Netherlands at the time. And I said, you mean MTV in, in New York? He said, yeah. I said, uh, let me think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> when do I start? And went there, uh, was eighty six, eighty seven, 86, 87? And started uh, uh, a seven and a half year long career on the MTV with a lot of radio on the side. And actually a lot of technology. When I landed in the U.S. ready to start my new gig, I had decided I was getting a Mac Plus with the big, with the big twenty megabyte external SCSI hard drive, oh, yeah. mind you, yeah, the big gray box was great. Uh, of course, a modem I think it was probably ninety six hundred at the time. I don't think it was anything above that. I think it was yeah ninety six hundred. Uh, you know, dot matrix printer, the whole deal,
0: mm-hmm. and Ami- I was image on, writer too.
1: Yeah, <laughs> image writer too. And I was on um, America Online and Compuserve, and I think Prodigy had probably started up by then. And I kept hearing about this thing called the internet, which was really cool. And all the cool people were there, mainly kids in college. And that's what interested me because they had access to mainframes and Unix timeshare machines and that, and, and they were watching MTV. So, Hey, is there, is there a place where I can go connect with the audience and gonna see if I can find it. Um, and of course it was very difficult to get on. You had to get a slip account or PPP for those of enough to remember where you'd uh, pretty much you'd tell that into a Unix box, and then you'd start up a, a slip connection. Then you have to fire up a stack on your computer, and then eventually you had a connection. And this is all pre-web days. And um, I was really enamored. I, I, I liked it a lot, what I was seeing, use new groups, Usenet groups and email. And I, w- I really liked Gopher. And Gopher was this, it was a hypertext-based system. So, you know, you had a menu, you start with, like your school's main menu and you could link out and that link could actually be connecting you to a different computer, typically a uh, that university system uh, who are up and running all the time. And then you could delve into their menu. So it was, it was, it was very much like uh, like the web only completely command line, just, uh, and not even that just menus. And you surf with your arrow keys from uh, uh, from different resource, from resource to resource. And I started uh, talking about this on air. And, and in fact, what I, what I had done is I, I, wanted to set up something for myself and I found a company called DiJex, who were above a Chinese restaurant in, uh, um, in Virginia, Breston in Reston, Virginia. And they rented to me on a monthly basis, a headless Sun three. And I learned enough Unix to be able to kind of maintain it and get the gopher server up and running. Um, And I, you know, I would solicit email and talk about stuff and it it was working. You know, I was, I was getting some interesting feedback from the people who were actually watching and this, you know, back in the day, if, if I had information like, oh, the singer of Blind Melon peed on the audience last night and, you know, in Podunk, uh, actually it was Spokane to be honest, I would know that the next morning before, you know, it would take two days for news to get down to the studio. That's, you know, these are the days. In fact, just a a little sidestep here. The way the system worked at MTV, now, mind you, I'm now on, uh, I'm in, uh, I'm setting up my own server. I'm on the internet. I've got, you know, contact with people through different mechanisms that were popular in the day. MTV, MTV is still writing scripts on a word processing system known as a Wang. Um, they then, uh, someone down at the studio would then have to print out the script on the Wang, actually the night before they would print them all out, put them in a Brown interoffice, uh, envelope, hand it to a driver from communicar, a car service we use to shuttle humans around. But they give it to that driver. He give it to my doorman, doorman walks it up and I'd be there, you know, writing notes on everything. Cause I had information. I was building little databases about artists and stuff I could talk about, which no one had.
0: So it's fair to and say then- you, you were the only guy at MTV at the time that was actually geeky enough to be able to use the new technology that was just coming up and the, the company in and of itself was nowhere near that level.
1: Well, I'll take it one step further. It was so antiquated, um, that the scripts would be printed out on the Wang system at the studio. And now, I didn't use teleprompter necessarily to read verbatim, but I I used a lot of bullet points and the producers I would work with wouldn't write too much for me. But regardless, this went into the teleprompter. And what that was, and mind you, these pieces of paper, so you had a stack of maybe 100 for a 48-hour shift that you were doing. Uh, we taped without the videos, just as an aside. It was rarely live. Um, you know, one by one, there was a guy, a teleprompter operator, who would put it on a conveyor belt. And physical conveyor belt, which would move it underneath a camera, a caption camera, which is, you know, hung right, <laughs> mounted right above that belt. Mm-hmm. And that was in turn hooked up to the, uh, to the monitors on the teleprompter, obviously in mirror reverse. And he would sit there and, and turn the jog wheel all day. I mean, that wasn't, that was the first teleprompter. It was pieces of paper. And, and, but shoot, this is, you know, captions, titles. I, use, I work with title cards and title cameras, caption cameras. We didn't have digital effects. It was, it was a beautiful piece of art done by the art department on a black cardboard, and you would wipe that into the lower half of the screen. <laughs> I mean, these are the days I come from. So, yeah, I was a little bit more advanced than, uh, than what was going on at MTV. Here's what's interesting. Uh, I got an email from the University of Michigan saying, uh, excuse me. Oh, wait, that's just one step back. I got the Sun 3. And the guy's digit said, well, what do you want the domain name to be? I said, I don't know. It was mtb.com. Okay. It, it, it was literally like that. It wasn't, it was just an afterthought and, uh, and it cost nothing the internet at the time was run by one guy who just had a spreadsheet <laughs> and, he, he, and I said, then get me curry.com as well. You know, so all that stuff. But so I had mtb.com and I was using it and it was funny. I sent an email to adam at mtb.com. Um, and then university of Michigan sent me a cease and desist. They said, you're using this for commercial purposes. Uh, you owe us $5,000 license fee <laughs> for gopher, for, for the gopher demon.
0: Oh, University um, of Minnesota.
1: Minnesota, I'm sorry. Um, and I said, oh, well, dude, look, I don't have $5,000, and this is not really commercial. I'm just doing this on my own. And MTV at the time, had said, because I, 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 I cleared it with them. They said, do whatever you want to do. We've got the AOL keyword. We're not worried about this internet thing. we got to cover it here. Nice. Um, yeah. so, uh, I said, look, I, I, I really, I, you know, I'm, this is not a commercial thing I'm not making any money off of it. it's just costing me money. Yeah. But you know, we have a license and blah, blah, blah. So, well, how about this? How about if I wear your gopher t-shirt on MTV? And they said, okay, that's good. We'll take that instead of the $5,000 <laughs> and, and is, is this still on this YouTube video of it somewhere? Um, and a little bit after that, I got an email from this guy in, uh, uh, Sherpaine Urbana. So that was Illinois. And he said, yeah, Adam, I saw what you do with mtv.com. Try out this, this new thing I'm working on. And you got to set up this, a different kind of server. It's HTTPD. And that was Mark Andreessen who had mm-hmm. just you know released mosaic. Uh, and so these are the days when this was, uh, kind of happening. And, uh, you know, so I, I got the, the web part going and it just started to build and build and build. And at a certain moment, I was like, you know, I think I I, I think there's something here. I think I should leave MTV. I had enough to you know, stay alive for a year and I'm just going to quit and let me see what happens. And I had a kind of a plan to uh, work out of offices from one of my radio syndicators because I, I was doing some cool radio stuff on the side. Um, and, and they were going to help me with office space and a little bit of business acumen. And so I quit one day right after doing the top, top you know, top 20 video countdown. I said, that's it off to the internet. And I left, um, what I had not expected is, uh, the, the next weekend there was a knock at the door, 7am Saturday, and I was served papers and MTV was suing me over the domain name, which if they had just asked for it, I would have given it to them. But they, you know, they, I told you earlier, they yeah. said, man, eh, we got the keyword. We don't need it. Do whatever you want.
0: So they, the first you heard of them wanting it was literally a lawsuit.
1: Yes, it oh, was wow. paper I bet. Know, with floppy disks and all kinds of stuff trying to dig up as much as possible. And we went back and forth for a while and we wound up settling. Uh, I, I also took to the press, I'll say, you know, oh, uh, David G- Goliath, et cetera. Right, right. Um, and I, I think they were just mad that I quit. I mean, I think that uh, in hindsight, that's that's what they didn't like. And I probably should have played it differently um, or play if
0: I if I'd yeah, cared, I, I, I think don't. it worked out OK.
1: Well, you know, I'd, I'd look back at things and say, was that the right thing to do? But there was so much animosity. That place was so political and so anti-rock and roll, really. Now, was in- that
0: owned by Viacom at the time, so?
1: Uh, yes, it was Viacom. Mm-hmm. It, it it had been Time Warner, I think, or uh, Amex owned it for, for a second, I believe. Anyway, but it, yeah, it was Viacom at, at this point. Mm-hmm. So I started my my first company after that. Uh, settlement. So start, the first thing I did was through a, an acquaintance. I met this guy, Ron Bloom, uh, who was from Los Angeles music producer. Um, and he was interested. He had, a, he had contact with the national Academy of recording arts and sciences with the Grammys. And we decided to go pitch the Grammys to do the first cybercast of the, I think the 1995
0: Grammys. Now would that have been audio or video and audio? Well, check it out.
1: We had C U C Me video Ooh. and we sold a sponsorship, one of the bigger ones, to this company Casio, who had just released their first digital camera. Wow. Where you can take a picture. You took this little memory card out and Oh, maybe it wasn't the memory card. I think we were still hooking it up to the computer serial yeah, port. Yeah, more than likely. Yeah. yeah, I think we were hooking it up to the serial port. Um and you know, so we got the license, we got the, uh, uh, the license for free. We didn't have to pay the Grammys anything, but they did say you can't go after our advertisers and you can't go, uh, because we have Visa, you can't go to MasterCard. Got it. Um, so we picked up a, uh, you know, a couple of the Casio was probably the biggest one it was, and it was, this, um, uh, financially successful, but not like huge money. But, it, you know, we were carrying flight cases. You have no idea we, what we had to put together just to make this happen. Um, and, uh, and, you know, after this event and it was great and we got a lot of press and, you know, many people were interested. What's this Curry guy doing? What's this, uh, at the time it was called on-ramp and we're sitting around thinking, now what, now what are we going to do? Uh, and the phone rings and it's, uh, guys, yes, this is uh, Robert McCauley from Anheuser-Busch. Uh, I saw what you were doing at the Grammys. Could I talk to you? You have like a, a business, uh, a business department or something. <laughs> yeah, hold on one, hold on one second. Hi, this is on ramp business department. <laughs> uh, and he said, yeah, I'd like uh, very much, he was the chief marketing officer at an- Anheuser-Busch. He said, I'm very interested in talking to you guys about putting up a website for some of our uh, beer properties like Budweiser. And that became our, our first, uh, our first big client and, and took me in a direction that I hadn't entirely expected to go in more like a, you know, it was first was building websites and kind of like an interactive agency type idea.
0: That's a pretty good um,
1: first client. Oh, it was, well, fantastic for a number of reasons. Because first of all, these are the guys, and we met Woody and Grinder, you know, these are the the uh, August Bush, the third and the fourth. And there was one thing, you'll never, we're never going to put any writing, any internet thing on our cans or bottles. So just stop, don't even think about that, young man. Mm-hmm. That's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Um, so, and a very corporate, very strict, very, very brand protective uh, outfit. Uh, but also, known for participating in all kinds of cool sports and, uh, you know, and, and fun stuff. Um, and so we wound up building Budweiser.com and Budlight.com and learned a heck of a lot about beer. And from there, Reebok.com, um, we did a huge website promotions for you will for AT&T, which turned out to actually be true. If you remember the Tom Selleck commercials, uh, one day you will send an email from the beach.
0: All oh, right, <laughs> right, yeah. In a,
1: little, in a little chair with a tablet, and we're all laughing like, "Yeah, one day." And of <laughs> course, that day certainly came. Uh, came Tamp- and went. Yes, Tampax.com, the website you'll visit more than once a month. I mean, we had all kinds of. We had, it was a lot of fun, and we had an opportunity to uh, sell the company to Omnicom. You really have, you know, two big advertising company uh, holding companies right. it's wpp and omnicom
0: so now and, hold on before you move to the selling the company so were you first of all still living in new york uh
1: well in uh, new jersey okay. uh, moved to new jersey, which you know is pretty much the the tri-state okay. area but
0: you weren't in la or anything like that
1: no okay. no always new york and new jersey
0: yeah and then by this point how long has it been since you left mtv and how big was the company
1: about it. So this now we're about a year and a half after I'd left and started I left MTV and started this company, and we're getting uh, these offers from Omnicom. They wanted to buy a whole bunch of uh, companies and start something called the the Communicate Group or whatever. And they uh, they wound up buying Agency dot com and Razorfish and a couple more I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And we decided to team up with uh, uh, another company in Los Angeles, which was more of a traditional advertising services company called the Mednik Group. And we decided to do a roll-up strategy and take it public, which from a entrepreneurial standpoint was like, if we think we can actually do it, why not? Let's do it, let's see what that's like. And I wouldn't do it again, although I don't don't regret it at all. And we're talking like, we raised a whopping $15 million. It was a very small IPO Mm in 96. This is really before the big IPOs came along. Uh, and learned a heck of a lot about that process. But we grew this company to 700 employees. Um, We had, uh, we had $450 million revenues at one point. I mean, it was was big. And I was the uh, chief technology officer and uh, which I'd learned a lot uh, about, you know, just interfaces, management, uh, what makes people efficient or not. And, you know, these are the days when, if you could give a graphic designer a higher-end machine, which would process an hour faster a day, you have no idea what that means on a, on a larger scale. Right. Oh, yeah, well, you, you do, actually, but uh, you know, people don't think about it that way. And I'm all about keystrokes and saving time. He, to, to this day, even, if there's a repetitive task that I find myself doing or something I have to wait, uh, I find a way to automate it, and it, it can wind up saving me half hour to an hour a day. And I certainly know how to how to play. So I don't mind having an extra hour a day to do something. So then around 99, um I I was pretty tired of, of doing this. It was now it's really big and I said to my partner I said, ah, you know, I'm 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 kind of toast. Um and my then wife wanted to move back to the Netherlands. She's Dutch. So uh we went back just before the just before Y2K. And, oh man, there was, there's a whole nother level of history of things that I was doing in Amsterdam. I built a data center. Uh, I had a company that was kind of a precursor to YouTube in a way. I mean, very early also with the data center, probably certainly five but probably 10 years too early for a lot of this stuff. Um, Probably cash rich, a little cocky about. Oh yeah, I know. I know what's going on here. I started a fractional helicopter company, another great one, which did not go well after nine eleven. Yeah, so a lot of stuff like that, and pretty much wound up for a while retired. As in, I'm just done. I'm going to sit here and I literally bought the farm. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there in the farmhouse in two thousand four. I'm very bored, and I still my this itch of being able to broadcast, and I and I've been doing fill in work and other. I've been offered other radio shows and things. doing a little bit of stuff, but always wanted to, to be able to broadcast on the internet, but the economics really weren't there. In fact, podcasting was born out of the bandwidth not being available. Uh, today, you can stream something quite easily. You can throw something on an iDisc or whatever, and people can download it, and you could say, I'm podcasting. None of this was available. I had been blogging a bit. This is very early RSS days, and I knew Dave Weiner and, um, And we had been, I've been collaborating. Many other people have been collaborating with him on on RSS and blogging. It was kind of fun. And then the iPod came up. And the iPod to me was like, I looked at this thing and everyone's saying, oh, it's great. It's a jukebox. It's your music. It's the the digital Walkman. And I'm like, no, that's a radio receiver. You just got to wrap your head around it. And I had this concept called the last yard somewhere. It's online. I wrote about it. And the idea of the last yard was based on my own broadcast experience. The example is when you watch the six o'clock news, although that may be presented live, a lot of that was done days ago, hours ago, you know, maybe put together in the last half hour. You don't know about it, but then it's presented and it's just live. Okay. This is a package and here it is. I, I have no concept as the viewer how long it actually took to get this to be presented to me and what we had for internet connection was the always on cable modem this they didn't say broadband no no always on which meant no more dialing in this was the big benefit of having a cable modem
0: no slip no ppp
1: that's right yes right and um you know ba- we barely had wi-fi in these days barely it was just just kind of starting up and um so i had the a concept so what if you had a mechanism where someone wanted to either watch a video, but I was thinking more, listen to a radio show, which would, could easily be 50 to 100 megabytes, which would take a long time to even pre-buffer before you could start. There would be no click and, and ex- you would not have a click and exciting experience, n- never. So what if we had a mechanism that would bring it right into that last yard, right before your computer and it stored it there. And when it did, downloaded all the data it needed and whatever bits and bobs, it just sent you a little flag and said, hey, uh, there's something new for you. And you clicked on it. You would have an instantaneously great experience because it would be already loaded. And what you didn't know happened in the background overnight didn't hurt you. That was the concept. Well, I flew to New York to, uh, to meet with Dave Weiner about this. And it took me, I, we had a first meeting and he, I could not explain it to him. And I think he thought it was just, he probably still thinks I'm a dick, but he thought, oh, what this guy, what a douche, you know, television guy. And then I took his software and I showed him the next day what I meant. And, and I can't, I can, I can program a little bit, but this was, it was horrendous what I did. I mean, he said, I love your idea of the last yard. Uh, don't ever touch my software again. I understand. And, uh, and, and thus was born the enclosure with the payload in RSS and, and, this was really now I have to say this was actually happening before 2004. I got my timeline mixed up. We were doing this before the iPod came out. I have a feeling. And when the iPod came out, then I went set about hacking an an Apple script that would, uh, check an RSS feed. If there was a new enclosure element would download it onto your computer through iTunes would then trip the iTunes sync. So then that would, that, uh, Show would appear on your iPod and ready to go you, you wouldn't know about it until you just you know picked up your iPod and like, oh, there's something new on it that was that was the idea now yeah. do people always do that No there's all kinds of issues with it um, but it worked and it was kind of exciting and um, there were a number of people who were saying, "Hey you know this is cool uh um, I don't like apple, so i'm going to see if I can build something to make it work on my um, what are they, you know like what was the f- big USB but there was a Rio, and there was a well, there were a whole bunch, of, and they got it was getting cheaper and more compact, and none of them really had good management software. And uh, so there were people set starting up little development of RSS readers or podcatchers. So I decided, here's how I can contribute. Why don't I make a, a show every day so that developers can test against that? Because there was really not enough content coming out regularly, and you learn a lot of things. I mean, the stuff we learned early on, which is not even thought about, but really was an issue at the time. Um, If you subscribe to a podcast that had 20 shows in there, the early systems would immediately start to download 20 shows, Uh. which could clog up not just your end, but on the server end as well. Because these are days of, of, you know, remember the whole idea was born out of low bandwidth. In fact, and this is why I said it, I was using my iDisk at the time. From Apple, and I was always surprised that they had not cut me off, because you know I, I was just dropping this on, publishing the link, and you know there must have been at least fifty in the beginning. Later, probably a couple thousand people who were download and I never got cut off, never got an extra bill, and I learned much later, years later, um, that they'd actually walked this up to Steve Jobs, and he said, "Just give him whatever he needs." Wow. <laughs> yeah, just let him. Just watch what he's doing.
0: So they give whatever
1: he needs. Yes, I, and I got it in a much bigger way later on. It was also about the publishing process. So not just the content, but of course, what I did with the content is I talked about what these guys were doing. You can only imagine there's nothing more fun than working on a project, which the intention is to make this, this radio simulation work, and the content that's, that you're testing with is about the shit that you're building. That's, that was kind of cool, and that's why I called it the Daily Source Code. Because it was daily and it was for, meant for people who were working on source code. It was the live system. It was the live system.
0: In those early days, did well, it sound good good sort of morning, like this? everybody, and welcome to the Daily Source
1: Code. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to download this MP3 file, or if uh, some of you may have received it automatically overnight as an enclosure in your.
0: Uh, in uh, your it's me in the car,
1: I think. In that case, uh, yeah, thanks it for is. subscribing. So first, uh, what I'd like to do is uh, explain exactly what this is, (laughs) what the Daily Source Code is going to be. And, uh, well, as the name already suggests, it's something that's going to be daily. And um, I'd like to elaborate a little bit on the name, Daily Source Code, and what inspired me to do this and where that came from. By the way, um, I'm recording this in my uh, car. I'm on the way uh, from uh, our home in Belgium to breda in the netherlands to pick up uh
0: usually to pick up weed the the truth comes (laughs) out the truth finally comes out
1: sure at purple rain in breda i know what i was doing
0: (laughs) so that i think was one of the earliest that sounds
1: like it yeah it, it was actually i did a lot of experiment later as stuff was you know the technical side was kind of coming together and i started to work more on the content fully well knowing that we had an issue playing music because of music licensing rights um, I did, uh, oh man, I flew over the English channel in my airplane by myself and recorded it. And I'm actually proud of that because I really worked on the, um, on the recording, on the sound of the airplane, um, the, uh, the ATC, the radio. So you could really feel like you were there. I called, what we call, we called them a sound, not sound, sound, to, we had a name for it. And I, and I did that at night with the homeless people in San Francisco and you know, I was really, grasping for straws at like creating content that was a little unfamiliar to me because I was used to making music-based content and really started to focus a lot on what to me was a whole separate path and that was creating audio or really being able to create radio in the proper way just like I do it had didn't done it in studios all my life but you should be able I, I felt I should be able to do this on a laptop I should be able to have a laptop I should be able to have my headphones um, maybe, you know, one external box or something, but not, but not racks of, of audio equipment. And this, none of this was possible because, or at least not the way that, uh, I feel it is best done, which is in real time because you can't do processing. Uh, or you could today, it's still actually quite difficult to do processing and software on your PC, uh, in real time, if right. you're doing multiple effects. And, and that's really, you know, when you listen to radio, most people don't think about it but a lot has gone into um the processing of the sound, of the microphone the sound in in the case of uh people with money like NPR a lot goes into the studio um you know the acoustics uh, so i felt that that somehow should be possible and i really set on a whew, a decade long mission of of trying to make it happen in in an affordable compact way that that was uh, equitable to the broadcast mechanism that we had created, as usual, I was early. But I what I didn't do is I didn't bring anything to market, although I did create several prototypes along the way. And the and the reason for this is you know the technology was not where my brain was or my vision uh, it just wasn't. I was certainly not in in software, and we didn't have much in the way of digital signal processing. Um, so I, in fact, at one point built a prototype that was completely analog. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with, with building it analog. Cause I know exactly what you need to, you know, to do a, a podcast or a radio broadcast It's very, it's the same thing. I know exactly all the pieces that you need for, for the basic setup in combination with what you can already do on a computer. But what was missing was really this piece, which up until this day is, uh, is really geared towards musicians, every mixer, every Compressor limiter, all outboard gear, everything, mic mic stands are are geared towards musicians. None of this is really geared towards broadcasting and radio unless you get into the higher-end stuff where there's a whole marketplace where it's made specifically for broadcasters, and that's usually just out of the financial range. Uh, So I I, am... so it was. It's more It was. It's been for myself, Gene. It's not. I, I was not looking to build a business necessarily. I wanted it for myself. I did. I hated lugging stuff around. Now I've gotten it down to um, you know smaller, smaller pieces, and you know you can probably get these pieces almost everywhere. But still, the way uh, we do the No Agenda show, which I produce on my end, um, and you can hear the the progression over the years. But I'd say in the last four or five years, we, our sound is pretty tight and 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 we're making Skype sound pretty reasonable. We're making non uh, non-studio environments sounding pretty darn reasonable. I will say when it comes to microphones itself, that's like religion. Uh, I happen to like a certain type of microphone, which is typically meant for broadcasting. In fact, I'm using the electro voice right now, which belongs to you, but I uh, appropriated it <laughs> and you're not getting it back because I like it a lot. Um, but I, I've been using the Pro, Procaster from um, Rhoda Schwartz for a while. But there are lots of people I know who, who use, you know, very high end uh, studio microphones and it works for them and they like it and they and they they've shaped their sound based on that. But just for pure broadcasting, I feel that there are some very specific characteristics that work Really well, and make it easy for anyone to sound good with the right processing, and that does come from microphones built specifically for broadcasters. But when it comes to mic stands, yeah, uh, a, a uh, having a scissor boom, you know, typically <laughs> mics you couldn't get those easily. You no, know, you want a, a scissor boom now? You have to get a high end one now. Finally, you can get those somewhat cheaper. Um, but look at uh, anything that any gear, any mixer. I mean, yeah, it's great to have eight buses. But, you know, unless it's relatively simple to create a mix minus so that you can um, uh, carry on a conversation with someone on Skype and them not hearing themselves back and you know what you're doing and you can put in noise gates and compressor limiters to kind of obfuscate the the room that you're in so that you can't hear that it's not a professional studio. I mean, it's really not trivial. It's not trivial to do that with uh, professional musical gear, and you wind up having way too much, too many boxes, too much gear, too many channels, too much of everything. Because you can't just get a, a four or five channel mixer with three buses. No, no, no. No, it has to be eight or 16. So none of this is uh, has ever been for the podcasting um, uh, community or for broadcasters in general.
0: Well, and podcasting, I think, certainly adds a new twist to even the needs of the radio broadcasters, which are I mean, let's face it, a tiny segment for the audio hardware manufacturers, that's why the gear costs so much money and it's it's hard to find, is because there are a lot more amateur musicians than amateur radio operators out there. But with podcasting, the added requirement is compact size. You don't just need something...
1: And, and price, Gene,
0: price. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly price, I think, is a big factor. But, you know, when you're running a radio station, how often do radio stations move?
1: Not very often. Yeah, exactly. No, no, exactly.
0: So you, a rack full of gear makes sense when it's going to be there for 16 years without but ever also getting it,
1: moved. But also you should be able to do this in you know, the spare bedroom or in the, spare, in the closet for all I care. You know, and lugging around gear and stacking it up and reconnecting it, it just doesn't lend itself very well to the idea that everybody can be a radio broadcaster on the internet. So in 2005... After Steve Jobs so kindly um, introduced podcasting to his universe by uh, putting the directory into iTunes and uh, then speaking very favorably of me, which I appreciate, um, there were, and he actually helped a bit. Um, was, we had one email exchange after that day and he had talked to people at Kleiner Perkins and we got uh, a lot of interest from vent, uh, Venture Capital uh, to start a podcasting company so this just uh, started in, in 2005, and that was located in San Francisco. And I was, at the time, living in London, so I was commuting back and forth. And I had hired John C. Dvorak to work at our company, Creating Content, uh, who I would met. I met him on This Week in Tech. I think we were both on Skype, maybe, for that episode. And I do recall, I think, after the show, maybe before, you know, like after show banter, and he said, hey, Curry, what's your deal? People hate you. Uh, well, I think you're kind of a dick too, but whatever. Uh, and from that moment, we were kind of uh, you know, buddies and we'd, we'd talk. And whenever I was over from, uh, from London in the San Francisco office, we'd catch up on stuff. And we decided to talk a bit on Skype. And I would usually talk about what I was reading in the news. And this was an interesting time because the euro had just been formally introduced. Uh, we had the Lisbon Treaty, uh, which was the uh really the final document for the european union and now i was reading these documents and this you know it was kind of the the constitution for the european union although it isn't um and what was being communicated in the press was something completely different from what i was reading in the paperwork uh, also a book came out called legacy of ashes about the cia and my my uncle don greg was featured prominently in this book and uh, i called him i said is this true and he, and he was like, yeah, that's pretty much how I remember it. And so this, all these things happened at the same time. And, um, you know, I started to become very interested in gold, which I, I then bought gold at you know, like $500 an ounce. Well, go look at the price now and tell me that was dumb. Um, it was just a lot of things that were going on in the world and things were changing. And Dvorak and I were talking about this through Skype. And one day I said, you know, I th- no, I think he said, you know, why don't we should just record this? It's okay. And then we turned it into a podcast and said, "Well, it's about nothing, so we just have no agenda. We'll call it that. We're not going to do any jingles or anything. Just no, no hoop de doo We'll just start and end. We'll make it twenty, thirty minutes, and it'll be fun." And then that twenty, thirty minutes, no jingles, hoopla lasted about six months, and then it just kind of took off. And people were very interested in hearing what we were doing. And we're both radio broadcasters, so we naturally started to build this up as a really a sort of postmodern. Radio performance, it's, it's, some, it's not something I've ever done like it before, and mainly because there is no preparation that is shared. We both prepare everything on our end, but the, the, the original premise of, hey, how you doing, what are you hearing, what's going on, is still there. Um, and that's, we feel that brings a lot of excitement uh, because look, I, I want to make um, my co host either be interested or laugh. I, I, I think we're more a comedy show than anything, I hope. And now we're doing a you know, twice a week, we're doing about three hours and it's all um, really produced by the audience. We uh, very quickly noticed that the type of people who were listening to our show all had not only, well, not all, but a lot of them had specific expertise in areas that were of interest to what we were talking about anyway. Um, a lot of people had skills in um, technical things, but also art. Um, a lot of people in making parody songs, jingles. And we said, you know, these people aren't listeners. They're producers. They're, they're actually, this is, this is what, this is what real public or listener supported radio is about. Let people get their stuff on too. And it's not just all, you know, it doesn't have to be like another voice. No, but it can be. It can be a, a parody song, a jingle, or a stinger, or, or just a clip of interest, something that is interesting, some interesting content. We probably play 40 to 50 clips of mainstream bullcrap every single show. So when people, these days, some people send a package of four clips, scripts included, everything. Now, it's not always perfect, and I may have to tweak it, but that's also learning. That's how I learned. And then we have people who, uh, who are producers who help us financially. And, um, we have different categories for that just like Hollywood. Um, if you are in the top donors for that episode, you become an executive producer and you get a separate credit in a separate part at the beginning of the show, just like Hollywood. Uh, we do the same for associate executive producers. And then we have a, a, a whole segment where we thank other people for their contribution. And that's really grown into its own entertainment segment, which is completely controlled and run by the producers. Um, so when someone donates, I'll just give you an example, executive producer, $300, they may have, you know, hey, call out my buddy as a douchebag. He hasn't, uh, he hasn't helped out at all in this show. And we have a jingle for that. I didn't make the jingle. Um, you say, hey, I want you to play this little bit or that thing because I think it's funny. And then put me on the birthday list. I mean, these are these are all production decisions that the people who produce the show are making. And we what? just follow it up. Um, in fact, the system that I use to manage all the content is called the Freedom Controller. And I built that. Well, Dave Jones, he built it, and uh, but we built it together. Uh, just you know, there's only eight people in the world using it, but it it is an entire content management system that that really flows from clicking on a button for a web page or a piece of audio that you want to capture, uh, saving it all, stripping out you know offline copies, putting it to uh, easy um, content management system with outliners to create show notes, and then at the end of the show, it's pretty much a click of a button, and then you have a web page with tabs, and it's beautifully organized, and you have your show notes and and your RSS feed. You know, again, the, all this abstraction, how can I make it quicker and easier and not be sitting around? I mean, usually when we're done with the show, it takes me about, I'd say within half hour, I have the show uploaded, show notes, artwork, it's uh, the feed, we've got torrent feeds, everything's all done. And it's, it's just one guy, it's me doing it. In in a larger concept, when you look at what mass media has become now that the masses are the mass media and they become the mass media whenever they want to, the concept of going viral, the business models had to change. And because the gatekeepers are gone, you're really competing on quality. So if you have an outstanding product, there is no real advantage to you know you just you don't have the advantage you can't own be the only guy in that time slot or the only person on that channel uh, your competition is is uh, is vast and and available anywhere everywhere anytime uh, so it's going although you can make a living with a much smaller audience than the typical mass media business the cost has to be uh has to has to be be in parallel and there is no reason for me to have a producer to do this stuff the only reason would be to throw away the money i'm not going to put in my pocket you're not the days of 10 million dollar paychecks are gone they're just gone i i don't see it happening anywhere um for any reason of course you'll always have you know your your exceptions and that's that's almost normal to see that but in general, everybody can make money in one way or the other if you have an outstanding product, and yeah, and, and you really have to open it up to the audience. They, they no one wants to be passive anymore. We have an entire audience that is producer, and that is the real key here. That's where the magic comes from. I can do a lot, and I you know, but there's only so much time I have. There's only so so many eyeballs I have. Uh, we do media deconstruction, so you know I'm not always looking at European news or South Asian news or European, you know, uh, you name it. Even there's between EU or UK, I mean, there's there's a lot. But to have people actively contributing, unpaid, we give them credit, of course, but re- they're part of the show, yeah. and and that it, that makes it work. It doesn't matter if you have a hundred million people. If you're not a quote brand safe environment, then advertising is not going to be the way you're going to make money. Uh, In the early days, you know, that was our pitch was, uh, did you go to the movies this weekend? So, you know, you had two tickets, you bought some popcorn, a drink. So it cost you 50 bucks, right? So you entertained for an hour and a half in a dark room with a whole bunch of other people. You liked it. Good time. Now we just gave you three hours. Did you, did you, were you entertained? Did you like it? Did it provide you the same type of value that you got for your $50? Well, then consider sending us $50. And this is what was the big discovery. If you ask people to give you what they think is fair, it's much more than if you ask them to give, to give you two bucks or five bucks or chip in for three. It's, it's an eye-opener. It's, you know, and it's also, it's an incredible validator when someone says, you changed my life so much with what you did Here's $1,000. That validates a, a crapload of what you're doing it, beyond the, the money. It, well, actually, the money is the validator in this case because it it sets a peg as to how valuable. I can, there's a lot of things that you can get for $1,000. That's a very valuable thing we did for that person. And I like that a lot. It makes me feel very good. Well, I, and I'll say, Gene, podcasting has brought me a lot of things. Um, it has brought me, above all, in- just happiness of being my own boss and not having to kowtow to anyone but the people who matter, which is, well, my own conscience, uh, the producers slash audience who produce this with me and my co-host. But it has brought me great friendships like yours. You know, we have connected through podcasting. We, we, we've done podcasting stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's really been a, a fantastic trip. Uh, and, uh, and I think that everyone who's involved in it one way or the other, it's, it is a, it's a whole other universe that is still just being explored.
0: I hope you guys have enjoyed this special Adam Curry edition of Sir Gene Speaks. And if you heard a few audio glitches, well, the software is still in beta. But I think it turned out pretty well.
1: Hold on, let me drop my mic.
0: And as always, thanks for joining me. Please do keep in mind that nothing in this podcast represents financial, legal, or medical advice.